Photo Shelter presents Vision Slightly Blurred. I'm Sarah Jacobs. And I'm Alan Murabayashi. Alan, why am I brainwashed into thinking that only Mac computers show accurate color when it comes to editing photos? <laughs> <laughs> well, no computer shows accurate colors unless you're calibrating your monitor. Good point. Right. I am I am a Mac loyalist and it's time for me to turn in this late 2015 desktop and I need a new monitor. And so I was doing some research and I was like, you know, I think I'm going to go off Mac uh, for a monitor. There, there are some great off Mac monitors that are available. There are ones that, you know, are used for very like video production that are very, very high end and will cost you $10,000. But you can right. get a pretty decent monitor for a few hundred nowadays. I mean, the technology yeah. is so much better than it was in the past. Absolutely. Yeah. I'm trying to stick in like the $500 range yeah. at most. Um, photographer Gavin Go uh, on Twitter sent me a very helpful link suggesting BenQ. He's been using it for years and really likes it. And so I've been looking into that. And as you know, since I got the Canon uh, EOS R5, <laughs> I obviously need something that's going to be fast and also show all of those megapixels. See, that's the problem with upgrading your gear is once you upgrade your camera, you're like, well, maybe now my computer needs to be upgraded. Now <laughs> exactly. my lenses. But that's good. That's, that's great. I mean, I, I think you are you having a lot of fun with the new camera? I am. I've been having a blast shooting with it, figuring out how it works, yada, yada. It comes out with amazing, amazing pictures. So it's just a matter of getting a machine that can like quickly process it. Yeah, yeah, for sure. <laughs> You know who else took really high quality, I'd say very sharp photos. Oh, who's that? This is a good transition. <laughs> Trying to be smooth here. Frank Bennett Fisk, who at 16 years old, which I just think is wild, took over the photo studio at Fort Yates, um, which was a U U.S. Army post in North Dakota. He was taking pictures of cavalry soldiers making money, but his even back then, they had side projects and side hustles, you know, Alan? <laughs> you, had to, you had to keep yourself happy. And the way that he did that was he took stunning, beautiful portraits of the Sioux tribe. Um, and it has recently come out in a book called The Standing Rock Portraits. You put this on the list. What, what grabbed your attention about the work? You know, it was one of these news stories that had come out a few years ago and then for whatever reason started trending, if you will, in, in my newsfeed, you know, multiple photographers that I, that I'm friends with started posting this stuff. And I think in part, because the, the images are really outstanding, Fisk used uh, a number of different technologies, but he, he kind of stuck with glass plates for a while. And mm -hmm. so the glass plates that survived, they have a remarkably high resolution. And when you look at the prints of these from these plates, I, I'm just sort of astonished at the level of detail. And also, you know, presume, you know, he didn't have strobes or anything, but the, the lighting that he's using, kind of the, the directionality of the light, and he was a very, very keen photographer. I think, I think they're mm -hmm. beautiful. Yeah, they're definitely stunning. I would love to see a setup of the studio and what it was like. I mean, he must have just had that beautiful North Dakota light coming through. You know, he spent a lot of time uh, in the Dakota territories, photographing the Sioux there. And he actually married uh, into a Native American bloodline. But he spent most of his life photographing the, the people that he was a part of the, the community of. And we've talked about other Native American uh, photographers who've captured Native Americans, some who've done it 
you know, as sort of flyby observers and some who've really embedded themselves into the communities. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's right. We talked about Edward Curtis uh, in a recent episode who basically dedicated his life to documenting Native Americans. So I was looking at this book, The Standing Rock Portraits, which came out in 2018. And and as I was sort of uh, bouncing around the Internet, uh, looking for more information on Frank Bennett Fisk, over at Princeton, they have a... It's, it's like a weird binder of, of photos and typed out papers that his wife and daughter, uh, Mary and Jordan Piper, put together. Uh, and it consists of 13 origi- original gelatin silver prints taken by Fisk of Indians in the Dakota Territory. There is a, online, you can find a, a link to scans of this work. And we'll have the this link and all the other things that we talk about on our blog at blog.photoshelter.com. But really sort of fascinating to see... Number one, all the typos of you know, this, <laughs> this family in kind of the, the early 20th century trying to assemble uh, these papers together um, and then seeing these beautiful gelatin prints again and, 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 and then seeing the backstories. Uh, the captions are, you know, in some cases, paragraphs long. The quality of the prints, I mean, they're, they're silver gelatin prints, but there's a real texture to the paper. I mean, it almost looks like a like a cotton like canvasy paper because there's a lot of texture. The, the, the tonality in the prints is, is lovely, even off of the scans. Um, and again, the directionality of the light, like if you had told me they were taken 10 years ago, I might even believe, believed you. Yeah, the I- when I first opened, stunning. Yeah. they are. When I first opened this story, I assumed that these were modern photos. Right, right. Mm-hmm. Uh, he he certainly knew what he was doing behind the camera, and you know all the more fascinating that he started when he was 16 years old, taking over the photo studio in Fort Yates. So the book is called The Standing Rock Portraits, published in 2018. Take a look at Frank Bennett Fisk's work if you get a chance. It's really remarkable stuff. Jim Richardson from National Geographic has been pointing me in the direction of. Uh, what's happening with the Uyghurs in Western China. The Uyghurs are a Muslim population uh, living within the borders of China. And over the past several years, the Chinese government has been sending them into re-education camps, um, forcing them to speak Mandarin, uh, Chinese instead of their own languages. Um, and it's kind of a, a cultural genocide in a lot of ways. Uh, they're, they're being forced to give up many aspects of their culture, many of the things that make them unique to assimilate into the Han uh, Chinese uh, culture. One of the things that Jim has done is he actually, back in the day with National Geographic, went into Western China and shot a story about the Uyghurs, uh, which you can find on his Instagram page. Again, we'll post that link on our blog at blog.photoshelter.com. But he has a real affinity for the, the people out of that area And he pointed me in the direction of a really, really cool uh, project called Artists for Uyghurs. And all they're trying to do is get artists who are interested in this particular cause to sell a piece of artwork on their own and then donate the proceeds to uh, a crowdfunder campaign out of the UK, Artists for Uyghurs. Uh, so unlike some of the other uh, uh, fundraisers that we've seen for Black Lives Matter, for example, where a single entity is trying to curate stuff and uh, be responsible for all of the logistics of the sales and the delivery, uh, this particular campaign is just decentralizing everything and saying, well, just donate the, the proceeds. I, I think it's actually kind of smart in some ways. I mean, maybe it doesn't have the same marketing 
consolidation as you as you would if you if you had a single entity um, selling and fulfilling. But it but it does mean that everybody can kind of reach their uh, different audiences and be responsible for packing and and mailing out and receiving the funds. I think it's a smart idea, and, and I would love to see photographers who are interested in the plight of the Uyghurs get involved with this. Another aspect of this story that uh, you had linked out to that The Intercept reported on is um, facial recognition that the Chinese police are using to identify Uyghurs and track them. Is that correct? Yeah. We, you know, our very first episode of Vision Slightly Blurred was all about facial detection and uh, AI. Um, and yeah, here is arguably one of the largest scale rollouts of AI where they have tons of cameras all over the area that are tracking the movements of people, identifying them. Uh, China has been particularly aggressive in using facial recognition technology to identify potential uh, criminals, known criminals, and in this case, just suppress uh, an entire uh, culture of people living within their borders. Um, mm. So another case of very nefarious use of, of this technology. Well, it's definitely a worthy cause, what they're calling for, for artists to get funds for this. Yeah, so check it out. Artists for Uyghurs will have that link uh, to both their Instagram uh, page as well as the crowdfunding page. Big news in the photo industry world this week. The Museum of Modern Arts photography curator Sarah Meister is moving over to become Aperture's executive director. Alan, I've come to know Sarah Meister, the photography curator, um, through a website where you can take online courses, which is Coursera. She helped launch MoMA's Seeing Through Photographs in 2016, and you had actually written about your experience taking the class for Petapixel back then. I also only got, I think, about two weeks into the course (laughs) and realized that it's a lot like my photo history class I had taken in college and didn't feel that I needed to (laughs) repeat repeat that year. (laughs) But it's a really exciting move. Sarah's been with the MoMA since she graduated college in 1997. So she has been there. It it is, it is. It's, uh, It's amazing to you know, have an entire career within one home. And she's worked with some incredible people. It's a pretty cool story because she was an art history major at Princeton and then got a job as an intern at MoMA and then has stayed on ever since, as you mentioned, since her since she graduated from college in 1997. Uh, Aperture said they had a one-year search to replace their current executive director, Chris Boot, who after 10 years is returning to his native England at the helm. I, I find this to be very exciting. Uh, in, uh, on one hand, because she's, quote, you know, young, relatively young, <laughs> maybe not that young. I think she's like 49. I think she's uh, close to my age. Um, but, but relative to the six-year-old who's retiring and uh, the fact that she has so much relevant experience uh, mounting exhibitions, being involved with the publication of uh, photo books. She seems to know a lot of people in the industry. And I, I read somewhere, and now I'm, I can't find the actual source, but she seems really interested in, in what this one article referred to as practical photography. And they define that as non-art photography, um, which I thought was in, in a lot of ways really refreshing because I think you can get really stuck in the art, you know, the quote art world 
while realizing or maybe not realizing that photography is such a universal way for people to communicate nowadays. So I like the fact that she seems to have a lot of awareness of the role of photography uh, at large in, in, in society today. Well, I think this move will definitely be interesting because, you know, when I think about Aperture, I think about, you know, new school creatives such as like Tyler Mitchell and Diana Marcosian. Um, and, you know, Sarah over at MoMA has worked with, you know, the, the archives of Dorothea Lange and Gordon Parks and Walker Evans, you know, the greats, the classics. So this is going to be a real interesting, I think, mix of her experience in the old school world versus what Aperture is bringing to the table um, currently. I think it'll be interesting to see where she takes it. I mean, she is a self-proclaimed admirer of old, authentic, and curious things. And Aperture definitely is more kind of on the cutting edge. One of her first big projects will be relocating their physical offices, which are currently an exhibition space in Chelsea, uh, where I've attended a, a talk or two. Um, it'll be interesting in the real estate landscape that is New York City during the pandemic to see what they come up with in terms of finding a more permanent space for mm -hmm. Aperture. Um, so in addition to all of her normal duties, you know, curating and leading the organization, she's going to have to find space. Her last exhibition at MoMA is Photoclubismo about the Brazilian modernist photography movement from 1946 to 1964. There's a book that's been co-published by Aperture. There's some wonderful, wonderful photography. But as I was going through the, the MoMA website, kind of looking at the detail on this show, I found at the very bottom there was a link that says, all licensing for MoMA and many other museums goes through an organization called the Scala Archives, which I had no idea about. I've never heard of that. Yeah, but the Scala Archives is this, this organization in Italy. Their whole thing is about professionally digitizing images and then handling the licensing for a lot of the major uh, museums in the world, including Musée d'Orsay, the Louvre, the MoMA. Uh, and, and I was just sort of fascinated by the fact that, that you know, a museum can hold the physical object um, and perhaps hold the intellectual property rights, the copyright, if, you know, it hasn't expired. But they outsource uh, the licensing to Scala because Scala is the expert in this sort of thing. Interesting. Um, so, you know, we talk a lot about the business of photography, and I just found this fascinating to find that there's, there's an institution and an, uh, an organization out there that has made their, the, their reason to exist uh, to handle licensing on, on behalf of museums. Sarah will be hosting a Zoom office hours chat this Friday, February 5th, uh, to discuss photography, her new position at Aperture that she'll be taking later this year, um, and, the study, and the status of amateur photography. I'm definitely going to be tuning in. What, what is the status of amateur photography? <laughs> <laughs> I, I hope to find out. I guess, I yeah, know. I guess we'll have to find out. <laughs> I was uh, browsing on social media and I wanted to end on something beautiful this week. And I came across a post by the U.S. Department of the Interior on January 30th. And it's a photo by Seattle-based Scott Krantz, who's an outdoor photographer and filmmaker. And the, the description says, a rain on snow event created some interesting shapes and textures in the backcountry of Mount Rainier National Park in, in Washington. It looks like soft serve 
overflowed an entire mountain. It is a beautiful, beautiful photo. It's it's gorgeous. It's kind of like when you're in an airplane and the clouds are really beautiful and you finally get on top of the clouds in the airplane. It's it's like that. I, I love the it's, tonality. It's you know, he he keeps it like a very cool photo, so you're getting sort of bluish shadows. You get these soft peaks from the way that the rain has sort of melted some of the snow. Some of the uh, captions, you know, people are saying it looks like a Disney animation. It looks like a cartoon. It looks like a Norelco razor ad <laughs> with shaving cream, marshmallows. It's <laughs> fantastic. Photo. You know, it's it snowed today. Uh, in, well, in a lot of the U.S., but also a lot in the Northeast here. And uh, I, you know, I tried to get a picture of the snow <laughs> out my window with my iPhone. It didn't look anything like this. It is uh, about 77 degrees and sunny today. There was a little bit of rain in the uh, the morning in, in Honolulu, but uh, other than that, we're, we're uh, very, very different at this time of year from what you're experiencing in New York, Sarah. <laughs> Definitely. All of the links that we talked about on the show today, you can find at our blog at blog.photoshelter.com. Hit that subscribe button, leave us a rating, or you can tweet at us and leave us a comment at photoshelter. Thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next week. PhotoShelter is the online leader for photography websites and workflow tools. Archive, distribute, and sell your photos in a mobile-friendly, responsive website. Try one free for 14 days at photoshelter.com slash podcast. Then download one of our free educational guides at photoshelter.com slash resources.